Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Imperial Q3 2021 earnings call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Dave Hughes, Vice President of Investor Relations. Sir, please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us on our third quarter earnings call. Uh, I'm joined today by Brad Corson, Chairman, President, and CEO, uh, and the rest of the management team, including Dan Lyons, Senior Vice President of Finance and Administration, Simon Younger, Senior Vice President of the Upstream, Sherry Evers, Vice President of Commercial and Corporate Development, and John Wetmore, Vice President of the Downstream. I'm going to start by reading the cautionary statement. Today's comments include reference to non-GAAP financial measures. The definitions and reconciliations of these measures can be found in attachment uh, six of our most recent press release and available on our website with the link to this conference call. Uh, today's comments may also contain forward-looking information. Any forward-looking information is not a guarantee of future performance and actual future financial performance and operating results can differ materially depending on a number of factors and assumptions. Forward-looking information and the risk factors and assumptions are described in further detail in our third quarter earnings press release that we issued this morning, as well as our most recent Form 10-K. And all of these documents are available on CR, Edgar, and on our website. So I'd ask you to please refer to those. Uh, usual format today, uh, Brad will start with some opening remarks, and then Dan will go over the financial performance, then back to Brad to talk through our operating performance for the quarter. Then we'll follow it up with uh, a Q&A session. So with that, I'll turn it over to Brad. Thanks, Dave. Uh, well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our third quarter 2021 earnings call. I hope each of you are doing well and had the chance to enjoy some time with friends and family over the summer. What a difference a year makes. The third quarter is now in the books, and I'm very much looking forward to taking you through our results today. It was a great quarter by any measure, as our strong operational performance continued to allow us to make the most of this very attractive business environment. Our assets performance met or exceeded our expectations. And once again, we have a few records to talk about. And I would note that this was across all of our business lines. Along with very strong operational performance, we continue to benefit from actions we took last year to reduce our overall cost structure and improve reliability. And this combination is so advantageous when commodity prices are continuing to see strength. This is what allows us to capture maximum value today, but also ensures our resiliency in a downturn should that occur in the future. In this quarter, the momentum you have heard me talk about was fully on display. We had very little planned maintenance, and on top of that, high reliability, which allowed us to take maximum advantage of the improving business environment. 
Over the next few minutes, Dan and I will detail the results of what was, again, a very strong quarter. So now let's turn more specifically to the third quarter results. Earnings for the quarter were $908 million, and our cash from operating activities was over $1.9 billion, both up significantly from the second quarter. Crude prices continued to strengthen through the quarter, and downstream and chemical margins remained robust. Our upstream continues to perform very well, and I'll talk more about each asset in just a few minutes, but would point out that we delivered our highest third quarter upstream production in over 30 years, driven by the second best quarter ever at Curl. And our downstream performed extremely well also. We saw utilization of 94% and higher product sales as demand continued to recover. We also announced our intention to pursue a renewable diesel project, which at the time of commissioning is projected to be the largest in Canada. This will deliver incremental shareholder value in addition to helping Imperial and Canada with the energy transition and overall reduction in emissions. And I can't say enough about our chemicals <clears throat> results. Wow. Not only did we set a quarterly earnings record, but our year-to-date earnings are already greater than the best-ever full-year earnings for the last 30 years. Obviously, we have one quarter to go for the year, so it's not a direct comparison. and says nothing about the fourth quarter, but gives you a flavor for just how strong our performance has been year-to-date. So in total, our strong cash flow generation in a period of very strong commodity prices is underpinned by excellent operational performance. We were able to get the most out of very attractive markets for crude, refined products, and chemicals. And once again, our strong cash position has enabled us to continue to deliver on our promise of shareholder returns. In the quarter, we returned over $500 million to our shareholders in the form of dividends and share buybacks. And so far in 2021, we have returned in excess of $2 billion to our shareholders. The last time our shareholder returns were this high three quarters into the year was 2008. And of course, there's more to come. All of this together adds up to a very strong year so far a year which is being recognized by the market. As of yesterday's close, our share price had risen over 85% since the start of the year, and up 50% since pre-pandemic levels at the beginning of March 2020. So with that, I will now turn it over to Dan to go through our financial performance for the quarter in more detail. Thanks, Brad. Getting into the financial results for the quarter, our net income in the third quarter was $908 million, up $905 million from the second quarter of 2020. This increase was driven primarily by an increase in upstream realizations and volumes, as well as improved margins in our downstream and chemical businesses. Now, if we look sequentially, our third quarter income of $908 million is up $542 million from the second quarter of this year, driven by higher margins in the downstream and higher volumes in the upstream and downstream, driven by substantially lower planned turnaround activity. 
Looking at each business line, the upstream recorded net income of $524 million, up about $280 million from our second quarter net income of $247 million, driven mainly by higher volumes due to the absence of planned turnaround activity at Coral and Syncrude. In the downstream, downstream's net income was $293 million in the third quarter, up about $230 million from net income of $60 million in the second quarter, reflecting higher margins and the absence of the planned turnaround at our Strathcona refinery. Our chemicals business continued to demonstrate strong performance through the third quarter with net income of $120 million, I'm sorry, $121 million, up from net income of $109 million in the second quarter, driven by strong polyethylene margins. This is the highest quarterly net income in over 30 years for our chemical business. Moving on to cash flow. In the third quarter, we generated over $1.9 billion in cash flow from operating activities, or just over $1.5 billion, excluding working capital effects. Our free cash flow for the quarter was about $1.7 billion, bringing our free cash flow for the year to over $3.2 billion, an improvement of about $3.5 billion from last year. Even with substantial returns of cash to shareholders, we ended the third quarter with close to $1.9 billion of cash on hand. Moving on to CapEx, capital expenditures in the third quarter totaled $277 million, up almost $140 million from the third quarter of 2020 and up about $20 million from the second quarter of this year. In the downstream, our spending reflects increased uh, spend for the Sarnia Products Pipeline. In the upstream, we continue to progress the Curl Impit Tailings projects, as well as spend on mine progression and efficiency projects at Curl and volume sustainment work at Cold Lake. Based on some great work done by the organization around capital discipline, we were able to revise our capital guidance down for the full year to around $1.1 billion without impacting the key projects that we had planned for the year. Shifting to shareholder distributions, earlier today we announced a fourth quarter dividend of 27 cents per share. We remain fully committed to returning surplus cash to shareholders. We have demonstrated this this year by increasing our dividend 23% as of July 1st and by returning over $2 billion to shareholders year to date, including $1.2 billion via an accelerated NCIB program in May and June. Given our strong cash position, we are actively evaluating options to return additional cash to shareholders, including accelerating our NCIB, executing a substantial issuer bid, or paying a special dividend above and beyond our base reliable and growing dividend. Now I'll turn it back to Brad to discuss our operational performance. Thanks, Dan. I'll now take a few minutes to talk about operational performance in the third quarter which, as I noted earlier, was very strong across the entire company, that is to say across all business units. Starting with the upstream, production averaged 435,000 oil equivalent barrels a day in the third quarter, which represents an increase of 34,000 barrels per day versus the second quarter of this year, and an increase of 70,000 barrels per day versus the third quarter of 2020. It also represents our highest third quarter production in over 30 years, 
and is the first time we've seen four consecutive quarters with upstream production exceeding 400,000 oil equivalent barrels per day since 1990. The increase was a result of continued strong operating performance driven in large part by our focus on reliability and by the absence of the planned turnaround activity we saw in the third quarter of 2020, notably at Curl. I'll now talk in more detail about each asset, starting with Curl. And by now, you must be getting used to hearing me talk about Curl continuing to deliver more and more impressive results. Well, here we go again, and I'm pleased to be able to report that that trend continued in the third quarter. Curl production averaged 274,000 barrels per day gross in the third quarter, which is the second best quarter in the asset's history. Recall that in the fourth quarter of 2020, Curl's production was 284,000 barrels per day. Now this quarter's production of 274,000 barrels per day was up 19,000 barrels per day versus the second quarter, due in part to the elimination of the planned turnaround, which has historically started in September. And as we discussed on the second quarter earnings call, we eliminated this second turnaround a full year ahead of our original schedule and began our strategy of only one turnaround each year versus two each year. The third quarter's production also represents an increase of 85,000 barrels per day versus the third quarter of 2020. Again, the increase due in part due to the absence of similar turnaround activities and the absence of a third-party pipeline outage. Now, as of yesterday, curl production for the month of October has averaged 289,000 barrels per day. So with our third quarter performance and the strong production and reliability we have seen so far in the fourth quarter, we are confident that we will achieve our increased production guidance for curl of 265,000 barrels per day, which we communicated in July. I want to take just a minute to talk about unit cash costs at curl and our target of US $20 per barrel. We highlighted that we were close to reaching this target late last year, and we continue to focus on reducing our operating costs and are making great progress. In fact, Curl's unit costs are down year-to-date, almost $3.75 Canadian on a unit basis versus 2020, despite continued pressure from energy prices, and in fact, we reached just under US $19 per barrel in the third quarter of this year. These strong energy prices along with the strong Canadian dollar are creating real pressure on the US dollar equivalent cost. But despite these challenges, we continue to focus our efforts on achieving this target of US $20 per barrel unit cost at Curl. Now moving to Cold Lake. We had another strong quarter at this asset as well. Production averaged 135,000 barrels per day, which was down 7,000 barrels per day versus the second quarter, due in part to planned maintenance 
but was up from 131,000 barrels per day versus the same quarter in 2020. And the key driver is we continue to see improved well performance driven by our continued focus on reliability and optimization at the site. Now the minor plan maintenance at the Mohican plant in the third quarter, which I talked about on the second quarter call, was completed per plan. And as with CURL, our third quarter results and continued strong reliability position us well to achieve and potentially exceed our increased annual guidance for Cold Lake of 135,000 barrels per day. Now moving to Syncrude, Imperial share of Syncrude's average production was 78,000 barrels per day in the third quarter, which was up 31,000 barrels per day versus the second quarter and up 11,000 barrels per day versus the third quarter of 2020. A major turnaround on one of the cokers at Syncrude was executed during the second quarter of 2021. The absence of this turnaround activity drove the significant increase in production for the third quarter. There was also a turnaround in the third quarter of 2020 at the asset. This asset has performed well post-turnaround, although there were some relatively minor challenges late in the quarter which have since been resolved. The original plan was also for a second turnaround at Syncrude in the fall of this year. However, this plan was optimized earlier this year and by slightly increasing the scope of the spring turnaround, as well as deferring some less urgent work into next year's turnaround, Syncrude was able to eliminate the fall turnaround this year. This optimization helps to reduce overall costs at the asset and maximize production, which is particularly beneficial in today's commodity price environment. Also of note was the transition of the operatorship of Syncrude from Syncrude Canada Limited to Suncor, which happened at the end of the quarter. The owners are completely focused on improving the assets performance and delivering full synergies over the next few years. Now let's move to the downstream. We refined an average of 404,000 barrels per day in the second quarter, which was up 72,000 barrels a day versus the second quarter of 2021. Recall we had a major turnaround at our Strathcona refinery in the second quarter, which primarily accounts for the significant increase in throughput in the third quarter. Throughput was also up 63,000 barrels per day from the third quarter of 2020, reflective of the demand recovery we have seen since last year. Our throughput of 404,000 barrels per day equates to a utilization of 94% versus the 78% we reported in the second quarter and represents the highest quarterly utilization since the fourth quarter of 2018, well before the pandemic. I would also remind you that on the second quarter call, I mentioned we exited June at 93% utilization. So as you can see, the strong performance and reliability continued throughout the third quarter positioning us well to meet our full-year guidance of 89%. As I mentioned on the second quarter call, we did have some planned maintenance activity in the quarter, specifically a smaller turnaround at our Nanocoke refinery, which started mid-September 
and was completed in October ahead of schedule. At the time, I mentioned this was not expected to have a material impact on utilization or margins in the quarter. And I, confirm, I can confirm that that work was completed as planned and as I mentioned, actually ahead of schedule. Looking at cash operating costs, our downstream business continues to do an excellent job in managing its spending. Year-to-date cash operating costs in the downstream were $1,455,000,000, which is actually down $87,000,000 compared to 2020, and down even more when normalizing for the high energy prices we see this year. This is especially notable because our refining throughput has increased by 33,000 barrels per day and our petroleum product sales have increased by 19,000 barrels per day. So not only are we refining more barrels and selling more product, we are doing it at a lower absolute cost. In August, we also announced plans to construct a renewable diesel manufacturing facility at our Strathcona refinery. This facility we will be world-class with the capability to produce 20,000 barrels per day of renewable diesel from locally sourced feedstocks. We are really excited about this opportunity, not just because of its potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by up to 3 million tons per year, but also because of its potential to deliver shareholder value at the same time. So stay tuned. More to come on this as we continue to progress towards a final investment decision. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Now, petroleum product sales in the third quarter were 485,000 barrels per day, up 56,000 barrels per day from the second quarter. This was largely driven by the increased demand during the summer driving season. Sales were also up 36,000 barrels per day versus the third quarter of 2020, as we continue to see demands recover from the pandemic-related softness of 2020. As of September, we were seeing industry demands pretty consistent with what we saw in the second quarter, with gasoline demands nearing 95% of normal and diesel remaining close to historical levels, and jet pushing above 55% benefiting from further easing of travel restrictions. I would add that if we look specifically at Imperial sales, our jet volume is actually about 10% better than broader industry levels, around 65% of historical, predominantly related to competitive gains we've been able to capture this year, increasing our overall market share. And with respect to downstream margins, unlike crude prices, our third quarter Crack spreads were hovering around the middle of the five-year band, which reflects fairly steady improvement over early 2020 at the onset of the pandemic. 
Despite ongoing demand volatility, our continued focus on reliable and efficient operations ensures we are capturing as much value as possible in the current downstream environment. I'll wrap up our operating results with chemicals. 2021 has been an incredible year for our chemicals business, and we continue to see outstanding results in the third quarter. Continued strong production, reliability, and margin supported chemical earnings for the quarter of $121 million, which represents the highest quarterly earnings in over 30 years. This also represents an increase of $12 million versus the second quarter of 2021, and $94 million higher than the third quarter of last year. I would also point out that year-to-date chemical earnings are $297 million, which is higher than the previous third quarter year-to-date record of $220 million set in 2018. And we have continued to see volume and margin strength so far in the fourth quarter. And as, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, our best full-year earnings for the chemicals business was $287 million set in 2015. We still have the fourth quarter in front of us, so this is not a direct comparison. But again, this gives you a flavor of just how strong our performance has been year to date. So in closing, an excellent quarter on all fronts. We have talked over the past few quarters about our commitment to put the company in the best possible place to maximize value, and we are seeing those benefits now. The decisions we have made and the work the organization has done over the past several quarters is exceptional and is allowing us to take maximum advantage of the prevailing market conditions. I am sure you will agree that our third quarter results highlight this. Having our operations firing in all cylinders when commodity prices are as strong as they are allows us to really deliver on our value proposition a large part of which is a focus on shareholder returns. And looking forward to the fourth quarter, as you have seen, commodity prices have so far remained strong, and we continue to focus our commitment to you to deliver maximum value. We are carrying a lot of momentum into the fourth quarter. And just to reiterate, we remain committed to returning surplus cash to shareholders. First, via a reliable and growing dividend, and second, through other means like an accelerated NCIB, share buyback program, a substantial issuer bid, or a special dividend. Given our very strong cash position, we are actively evaluating those steps, so stay tuned. With that, I'll turn it over to Dave for the Q&A session. Okay, <clears throat> thanks Brad. Uh, we did have a number of questions pre-submitted, so let, why don't we open up the Q&A with a couple of those and then we'll go over to the live Q&A line. The first question comes from Phil Gresh, JP Morgan. Uh, how should we think about the production progression over the next few years at Curl as you aim to ramp to 280 plus? Thanks for the question, Phil. Um, you know, we continue to see record performance out of Curl based on our supplemental crushing capacity that we have discussed in the past and other enhancements in reliability. And so that gives us great confidence in assets' productive capability. And moreover, 
you know, as we've announced last quarter, we moved to one turnaround starting this year from two previously, which is a key driver for us increasing our 2021 guidance to 265,000 barrels a day. A target, as I just mentioned, we remain very confident in achieving given the continued strong performance through the third quarter and now into the fourth quarter. So beyond the 265,000 barrel a day level, uh, we've got other low cost projects to get to the 280,000 barrel a day level over the next couple of years, including plant debottlenecking, um, enhanced mine planning, bitumen recovery, as well as some digital initiatives. You may recall at our previous investor day, we outlined that path to 280,000 barrels a day with Curl reaching 270,000 barrels a day in the 2023 or 2024 timeframe and ultimately to 280,000 barrels a day by, 200, by 2025. We still see a progression path, um, but as evidenced by our recent performance and our track record of continued improvements, you know, I fully expect that we will do better than that 2025 timeline. At our upcoming investor day in March, we'll give more information on that. But, but again, I expect that we'll be well ahead of that earlier timeline. And then I'd also note that as we continue to de-bottleneck curl and really put more barrels over a relatively high fixed cost asset base, we also expect to continue to drive down our overall unit costs. We are only partway through the ramp up of our autonomous haul truck program, and we've talked about realizing a U.S. $1 per barrel saving from the full rollout, which we expect to achieve over the next two years. So in addition, we see a number of opportunities to apply digital solutions more broadly at Curl, which include drones, other optimization technologies, with an overall objective to continue to drive that cost not only the $20 per barrel, but even lower beyond that. Thanks for that question, Phil. And, and Phil had a follow-up. Uh, since you pushed back the timing of Investor Day, could you give us some updated thoughts on CapEx in 2022 and beyond? Does the framework from the last Investor Day still hold, or could there be increases in spending from project, project activity like renewable diesel and or inflation? Yeah, thanks for the second question, Phil. Um, you know, we were really looking forward to uh, to getting back together in person at the end of this year for, you know, what would have been uh, Investor Day in November. Um, we see a lot of value to that event being in person, uh, as, as I know you and, and other analysts uh, and investors do as well. Um, you know, as we reflected on the situation uh, with COVID across Canada, you know, and some of the travel restrictions that are still underway, we concluded it was still just a bit too soon for an in-person event like that. And so consequently, we decided to uh, adjust the timing of our investor day, moving it one quarter, and, uh, and so now planning to host that event in March of next year. Um, 
and soon I would I would anticipate you'll get a save the date notice from from our investor relations team. And but insofar as 2022 guidance goes, we're planning to share that with you um, within the next month or so, so that you will have our latest numbers in a timely fashion. Uh, you know more along the lines of what you would have uh, received you know, uh, in prior investor days. And so we'll give you that guidance, but then at our investor day early next year, we'll go through our longer term outlook, which will include an update on the Strathcona Renewable Diesel Project, other capital investment plans. Um, and, and what you'll see is a story that, you know, looks very similar to what we laid out last year with CapEx growing from kind of this year's levels, um, you know, which we now have updated at $1.1 billion, and we previously projected over the next few years we'd be averaging around $1.5, $1.6 billion. And, and really we see that general uh, magnitude of expenditure continuing, especially with, um, you know, the, the Strathcona Renewable Diesel Project. Uh, we believe we'll mostly be able to include that in those same levels of spending. So, you know, that's just kind of a high-level characterization, uh, but, but more to come, uh, you know, with our updated guidance and then, then investor day in March. I guess also specific to your question on inflationary pressure, we do see some cost pressure in our business, but we don't expect it to materially impact our capital spending levels, you know, given our ability to find offsets and, and efficiencies. Thanks again, Phil. So I'm going to add another one here that uh, a few folks have asked about this, so I'm going to pull it together into one question, but it sort of uh, follows up from the, the question about inflation in general, a bit more specifically, and that's what's the impact of the much higher natural gas prices uh, on our refinery profitability. And, uh, you know, our fuel cost advantage that we've talked about before, our uh, refineries' energy efficiency, is that still... Uh, is that still an advantage? And then kind of finally, does it have any implications for potential stepping up development of our unconventional assets? Yeah, it's, I mean, that, that's a really good question. Obviously, energy costs, you know, are an important uh, driver for us. And so we're watching that very carefully and doing everything we can to offset those uh, those upward pressures, um, you know, as I mentioned in, in my comments on curl and, and generally the, the downstream. Um, but speaking more broadly about kind of the impact of uh, higher natural gas prices, um, you know, what what we've indicated in our 10K filing and, and still is, is very accurate and representative is really a modest uh, impact overall. Um, we see uh, for every $1 change in gas price, Canadian $1 change in gas price, we would estimate uh, about a $90 million net income impact uh, for that $1, $1 change. Now we also produce about 110, 115 million cubic feet per day of gas. Uh, mostly from our unconventional assets. So that provides some internal offset versus our gas um, 
input costs, energy costs across upstream and downstream, and you know that's why that one dollar impact to gas prices is pretty modest. Um, I'd also point out that our gas feedstock costs remain advantaged globally and are moving higher in the context of, of a stronger overall commodity price of environment. So on a net basis, we're really benefiting from higher commodity prices, including for crude and refined products, as you can see in the, the strong cash flow that we generated for the quarter. I'd also note that our refineries are at or near industry best in class when it comes to energy efficiency according to our Solomon surveys and, and that trend has continued for many years now. So we have an advantage over Canadian competitors in the current high price environment for, for gas and energy. So all that said, we, we don't take rising costs for granted and we're always looking for offsets. A good example in our down, downstream is our recent investment in the 41 megawatt cogeneration unit at our Strathcona refinery, which reduces our, our electricity price exposure and overall energy costs. Um, and so with the Strathcona cogen project, I, I would just mention we now have almost 600 megawatts of cogeneration capacity across all of our portfolio. And as for whether you know, we'd step up investment on our unconventional acreage to produce more gas, I'd say you know, we're never sitting idle and, and we're always considering our investment choices. But at the moment, uh, you know, we're continuing to focus on our core oil sands operations where we haven't yet exa exhausted all of the highly economic value creation opportunities that, that we see. That answers your question. Thanks. Okay, operator, uh, I think we'll flip over to the live Q&A line now, please. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Again, that is star, and then the number 1. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Your next question will come from Neil Mita with Golden Sachs. Your line is open. Good morning, team. <laughs> Brad, um, you, you laid out a little teaser there around uh, capital returns, and as I think about part of the stock reaction today, I think there was maybe some expectation for, for some incremental updates there, but it sounds like those could be coming. And just talk through how you're thinking about uh, a buyback relative to a tender, relative to continued dividend growth, and, and help to, us to frame out uh, the timeline around any such decision. Yeah, thanks for your question, Neil. Um, and yeah, I, I did want to, you know, really reinforce our commitment to returning excess cash to our shareholders. Um, you know, we've We've made that a priority for a, for a long time. Uh, we've demonstrated with our actions throughout this year that that was a high priority for us. Um, I know, you know, there is a, a, a focus on dividend and share buybacks, and, and I would just remind you and others that, you know, due to the, the strength of our company and the actions we took through the pandemic, we did not have to cut our dividend. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, we maintained it 
through last year and then earlier this year, we announced a very significant increase in the dividend, five cents per share uh, on top of the, the, the prior 22 cents. So, you know, almost 25% increase. Um, a little bit later, um, you know, approaching the summer, we did reinstate our share buybacks um, with, with a very accelerated 4% program over, over two months. Um, and then most recently, we've reinstated, you know, the kind of a full year 5% um, share buyback program. So, again, we've been very active and committed in returning cash to our shareholders. And so as we look to the rest of this year and into next year, you know, the momentum is building for us as, as a company. We are generating significant cash. We are seeing our cash balances grow. And so, you know, we, we're committed to returning that excess cash um, to our shareholders. And that's why I mentioned, you know, that we are actively evaluating um, some very important steps over, over the coming months that could include an acceleration of our NCIB program, um, could also include a substantial issuer bid, or, or perhaps a, a special dividend. Um, we, we haven't made any final decisions yet, and it's, it is subject to board approval, um, but those discussions are, are actively underway. Um, and I, I, I might also ask Dan to comment a little bit on our, our views on uh, substantial <coughs> issuer bid versus special dividend, uh, because we have been discussing that, uh, you know, with, with our shareholders, and, and that's influencing us. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Yeah, regarding, you know, an SIB versus a special dividend, I've talked to a number of you on the line. You know, we like to get, get folks' views, analysts and investors. You know, we're, we're, we're a bit agnostic, but I think the feedback we're getting is, is pretty significantly in favor of, of a, a substantial issue or bid buyback over, over a special dividend. And there's some research that came out recently that, that said some of that too, but mainly that, that's really from just talking to investors. So, um, I mean, there's different reasons for that, you know, tax and you have a, you have a choice and uh, more structural maybe with an SIB is, is what folks tell us. So, you know, as we weigh those, um, those options, we'll certainly, uh, we certainly take investor input into account in, in a very significant way. And Dan, is the logical timing to think about uh, an update around this, um, the fourth quarter call, that's when you made a big decision around dividend bump earlier this year. Is that what we should base case as, as, as the, the, the clearing point for this decision? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't get into timing. As Brad said, we're actively evaluating um, all this stuff. And, you know, look. I think we, as Brad said, we're absolutely committed to returning surplus gas. I think we've demonstrated that. So um, just, uh, you know, we're, we're working through that. Okay. All right. And the follow-up question is just uh, your thoughts on the Canadian um, oil markets here. Um, WCS um, uh, is widened out a little bit in terms of the differentials, but um, line three is now online. Just how do you, how do you think about spreads from here and, as oil has stayed firm, do you think that differentials could stay more contained now that you have um, pipeline takeaway? Yeah, there, there's no doubt, you know, we're very encouraged by um, by the additional takeaway capacity here in Canada. You know, it's it's been a long time coming to get some more uh, 
egress capacity and so now with the the line three expansion uh, being up and running I think that's that's very positive um, and of course longer term you know we're, we're still encouraged by um, by the plans for the TMX uh, completion as well so you know all of that provides more more access for our barrels to get to the the higher cost markets, um, you know, in, in the U.S. And, and and I think, you know, having more uh, stability and, and flexibility in that regard, you know, should help keep um, these differentials uh, fairly narrow. You know, we, we've seen pretty good stability throughout the year in those differentials, you know, pretty much in the 13, 14, you know, $15 barrel of range. And, uh, you know, that differential coupled with some very strong, you know, WTI pricing, um, you know, puts us in a, a very strong position. Um, so I, I think we will continue to see, um, you know, some, some fairly tight differentials. Um, you know, there's always some volatility that, that could occur depending on, you know, unique situations in the marketplace and if there are any pipeline disruptions that that might occur with unplanned outages but you know we're, we're feeling quite encouraged thank you and your next question will come from Dennis Fong with CIBC world markets your line is open Hi, good morning. Um, thanks for taking my question. The first one really relates to uh, capital spending uh, some, somewhat to this year. So there was a, a modest decrease in, in guidance uh, from 1.2 to 1.1. Um, was just hoping to understand, uh, obviously in light of the stronger uh, production that you're seeing both from Curl and Cold Lake, um, has that influenced any of your, we'll call it, pace of development for other assets like Grand Rapids um, and so forth, and how do you think about balancing some degree of obviously optimizing the base production levels versus um, tackling uh, potentially, we'll call it ESG slash uh, expansion related uh, focused projects? Um, and I've, I've got a separate question for the renewable diesel facility, but really more on the upstream side there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, you know, first on capital spending, I, I would just reiterate. Uh, the comments we, we made earlier on the call that, you know, despite our reduced guidance on capital spending, you know, that in no way reflects a change in focus of our program. Um, it really is just reflecting that as the years progressed and as we continue to lock in efficiencies and achieve capital discipline uh, objectives, we have been able to complete the same amount of work we had planned, but at a lower cost. So that's a really good outcome. Um, as we look to the future, and, and we will talk much more about this at Investor Day in March, you know, we continue to evaluate all of our um, efficiency projects, our um, kind of growth opportunities with um, de-bottlenecking and other kind of low-cost, high-efficiency use of capital. And, you know, we, we are positioning all of those, you know, in the best 
time slot that uh, that makes sense for us to maximize earnings, maximize value, and of course, you know, capture um, the the market as best we can. Um, you know, so you think of think about an asset like Cold Lake. Um, you know, one of the reasons we have been so successful with our uh, volumes performance there is because we have consciously deployed additional rigs to do workovers and, and other um, well optimization activities uh, to increase production there. And that's low cost and, and high return use of our capital. So we're going to continue to do that. You know, obviously this price environment encourages that. For, for bigger investments, you know, we're, we're taking a look at a much longer view of the price environment and certainly um, need to be cognizant of, of other uh, risks that we may see long term. Um, when it comes to ESG, and again, you'll, you'll hear us talk more about this at Investor Day, but a significant part of our capital strategy is to reduce our overall emissions. Uh, you heard us talk at last quarter's call about the startup of one of our boiler flue gas uh, efficiency projects at Curl. On just one boiler, we have plans to expand that to five other boilers. Um, we're also deploying uh, new solvent technologies at Cold Lake. Uh, which also reduce our emissions. So ESG and, and lower emission spending is, is very important to us. It's very prominent in our capital spending plans, um, but also creates economic value, um, you know, at, at each of the assets where we're, we're making those investment choices. So, um, so, so more to come on that uh, in, in March. Great, great. And then my, my follow-up question here is just on the renewable diesel facility there. Uh, just from the language of the initial announcement, as well as uh, the potential significance, again, balancing uh, components of a strong economic return, as well as um, ESG-focused projects, it seems like, I don't, want to, I don't want to say it's a slam dunk per se, but it seems like a very um, attractive project to move forward on. So um, with kind of FID potentially in sight, what are some of the last uh, items that you're looking to get gain incremental clarity on? Um, it sounded like you were continuing to pursue, we'll call it negotiations and discussions with various uh, government and, and regulatory bodies. How is that potentially uh, progressing? So just wanted to get a quick update as to where you're at with the renewable diesel project. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question and, and thanks for the interest. I mean, I think you, you characterized it well. We see it as as a high priority value accretive project for us as it does deliver significant um, environmental benefits um, so we are progressing it as as quickly as efficiently as we can um, we are still in the middle of, of several commercial negotiations um, you know, around uh, sourcing the feedstock, around hydrogen production. Um, you know, we're also optimizing our own design to make sure we're leveraging best available technologies. Um, 
And so all of that is kind of work in progress that will bring us to an FID, um, you know, probably sometime next year, um, but, you know, uh, more work to do there. Um, you also mentioned uh, our discussions with, with government entities. Yes, those are very important to us. Um, we've had very uh, constructive discussions uh, both at the provincial level and the federal level. I think there is a shared view that this project is, is very important um, in, in the overall kind of Canada's objectives around net zero um, and, and individual provinces like British Columbia see it also as very strategic uh, for their, um, their, their fuel sources. And so, you know, we're, we're just working with all those entities to um, kind of align on a plan and a strategy, um, you know, their participation and support. Um, but it's all going extremely well. Um, and and that's, that's the key message I want to leave with you is, you know, we, we are very encouraged, very optimistic, um, and, and certainly more to come. Uh, and, and we would expect to have, you know, much more detail available in March at, at Investor Day. Great. Thanks. I appreciate the color. Thank you. Your next question will come from Greg Party with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Good morning. Good. Good rundown and good questions. Um, the first one is almost like a modeling question, Brad. It's probably for Dan, but it's really just around tax horizon and and cash taxability. Obviously, a high class problem in the you know in the world we're living now, oil price wise. But how should we how should we think about that in 22? Yeah, do you want me to grab that, Brad? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Greg, obviously, yeah, it is a high-class problem. You know, if you asked me a few months ago, you know, I would say we'd have sort of uh, very, very minimal cash tax payments in, in, in 22. And I think that's still the case. I don't think we'll have, you know, really what I'd call significant cash tax payments in 22. But, you know, on current trends, we, we will become um, cash tax paying in, in 23. That's probably as, as good as I can give you at this point. Um, obviously, it's sensitive to prices, right? We want them higher. <laughs> so if that drives us to pay tax, that's just fine. But, yeah, uh, we're getting to the point where, um, um, you know, losses and, 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 and depreciation and stuff like that, which have really we've been very, very low taxes for, for quite a while, um, we're, we're getting past that point. But I think 22, you'll see minimal, you know, relatively small amount of cash taxes and, and a more, much more significant in, in 23. Okay. Terrific. And maybe just – Shifting over to um, maybe just the Pathways Initiative. Like I know, I know you're in the middle of negotiations still with governments and so on. But Brad, is there anything you can say in terms of the um, direction that that is heading? And obviously, there's been some appointments with the change up in terms of the federal cabinet and so forth. But how should we sort of read maybe the progress on on Pathways in terms of what you can say? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question, Greg. And uh, you know, I'm I'm really excited about the Pathways Initiative. I I think we're making great progress. Um, you know, the the consortium of five companies are are all very uh, engaged. They're working very closely together. Um, you know, myself and the other CEOs, we're we're meeting on a very regular basis. 
um, to kind of review our our plans and and kind of next steps and and progress and and again all very positive we we just issued some new information to the market um, uh, I guess early last week to give some more uh, updates on our plans talk about the phasing that we see um, with our emissions reduction initiatives uh, and and all of that you know is illustrative of kind of our commitment to achieve net zero by 2050 for the oil sands and, and what you would see in those announcements is a, a significant reduction by 2030. Um, a lot of work underway right now around um, kind of feasibility studies for the main uh, pipeline uh, from up north in Alberta uh, down to Cold Lake. Uh, getting design on that. Uh, also looking at you know all of the potential sources of carbon that we would want to capture and what the the timeline looks like to uh, to complete those those capture investments um, and then equally important is working with the Alberta government uh, around pore space and and so we've recently submitted our application uh, for access to pore space in the Cold Lake region um, and then in parallel, uh, we are, we're in conversations with the federal government around the investment tax credit and the consultation that they've had underway. And I, I would just say that all of those conversations continue to be very constructive. There, there is a uh, strong support for this project. There's a strong recognition that it is uh, kind of fundamental to the country achieving their net zero aspirations by, by 2050. Um, you know, with respect to some of the new uh, ministerial announcements, obviously we, we follow that very closely. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Wilkinson has been a key contact for us on, on broad environmental issues. He's now, you know, staying in the cabinet, moving over to uh, NRCAN, which is an, another very key uh, ministerial position for, for our engagements. Um, you know, we, we, don't, we, we don't have, um, you know, a, a lot of ex experience with the new environmental minister, but, you know, we very much look forward to engaging him and talking about our project and next steps and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, achieving a, a shared vision of, of net zero by 2050. Um, you know, we, we have a long history of working with, with many ministers and many governments. Um, and, and our objective is, is always to uh, make those engagements as, as constructive as possible and, and look for ways that we can contribute to Canada's overall goals. So again, um, you know, things progressing well and, and more to come, but I'm extremely pleased with the progress we're, we're making. Terrific. Thanks very much.
Thanks, Greg. Okay, um, so we have uh, a few more that were pre-submitted. Um, uh, so we'll start, the first one comes from a NAV group, the Credit Suisse. Uh, Neil Meta had asked a bit about uh, kind of our forward view of, of the, the heavy differentials. This one's a bit more specific in that we are seeing some widening of the heavy light spread today, and can you talk about what may be driving that? Yeah, thanks for that question, Manal. You know, obviously there, there's always a lot of moving parts in, in, in the market, and especially right now. Um, you know, I think a key factor in in that spread, and again, it's it's generally been pretty tight, although it has widened a little bit in, in the last month. Um, and I think a contributor to that is we did see some uh, inventory builds uh, here in Western Canada um, over the last month or so, kind of in parallel to the commissioning of Line 3 and you know, some, if you will, temporary impacts that had on on pipeline egress. And, and I think there was also some very short-term uh, pipeline outages that also impacted egress, all very temporary in nature. But it did cause a build in inventory. Um, and so I think that probably had an effect on, on some of these differentials. Um, so that I think that's that's the key beyond what I've already said. Uh, Manav had a follow-up question related to renewable diesel. Can you talk about the feedstock you plan to use for the renewable diesel facility? Will it be veg, uh, vegetable oil primarily, or will you use some tallow? Yeah, kind of maybe building on my earlier comments of, about this project and, and and our optimism about it. You know, with respect to feedstock, we we are very much planning to use vegetable oils not a waste or tallow product. Um, and one of the reasons we chose our Strathcona refinery is because of its location. And it's, you know, it's in close proximity to abundant uh, local agricultural feedstocks. And so, you know, as, as we think about that supply chain, you know, we view most of those crop sources being within a day's transit by rail. And so, you know, that provides, I think, some natural synergies. Um, you know, co-locating it with Strathcona Refinery also provides further strategic advantages, cost efficiencies, um, you know, and, and also in close proximity to kind of a low-carbon fuel market in BC. So all those things were factors uh, for us to choose the location, but you know, to, specific to your question on uh, on feedstock, you know, being close proximity to that that crop base is really important. Okay. Uh, from Prashant Rao at City, uh, it, it's related as well to renewable diesel, but a bit maybe more in uh, in a strategic nature. Can you talk about where Strathcona Renewable Diesel fits in the overall goal for longer-term net decarbonization goals, both at Imperial but also as Imperial fits? Uh, into ExxonMobil's recent updates on this front, and then is there potential to include the remainder of the downstream asset base in the strategy? Yeah, thanks for the question, and obviously a, a lot of interest in our in our Strathcona renewable diesel project. So I very much look forward to uh, you know talking more about that in the coming months as we progress towards an FID, and I know. You know, John Wetmore here, who runs, you know, our downstream business, um, you know, he's 
actively engaged in progressing that project, and I'm sure he'll be sharing more details as well. Um, but specific to your question, you know, we've, we've been examining potential solutions in support of a net zero future for, for some time now. And, and as we approach it, you know, we, we bucket those solutions into short-term, medium-term, long-term opportunities. And this specific renewable uh, project fits into our short-term bucket, uh, but, you know, for Strathcona. But its use could certainly be expanded over a longer-term horizon with, with other refinery applications for us here in Canada. You know, we're already manufacturing advanced fuels, lubricants, and we've been growing our biofuels blending capability as well for some time. So, you know, this Strathcona Renewable Diesel Project really builds on that foundation and allows us to participate in the growing renewable fuels market in a very efficient way, very economic way. And you saw ExxonMobil announce the Strathcona Renewable Diesel Project alongside our announcement, which I believe really showcases the importance of this project within their portfolio as well, and also just reinforces the alignment uh, between Imperial and ExxonMobil on this key project initiative. And so as I mentioned, you know, we've, we've started with Strathcona, with Strathcona given its proximity um, to the feedstocks and the fuels market, um, but I, I very much suspect that there will be other opportunities to progress our low, lower carbon strategy within our downstream business in other ways o over time. Okay. okay, and we have one final question also from Prashant Raut City. Um, investors are broadly expecting industry chemicals margins to recede as 2022 unfolds. If you would, could you please talk about Imperial's chemical business within the global context as, as this happens? Anything we should keep in mind which might differentiate your operations from the global trend? Yeah, thanks for the question, Prashant. Um, you know, you, you, you heard me talk quite, uh, quite positively about our chemicals business, and, you know, I think the outlook uh, for that business, you know, continues to be very strong. We've got a very low-cost chemical business that benefits from a number of structural advantages, uh, maybe first and foremost being the integration with our Sarnia refinery, uh, which really lets us optimize our product mix to extract the most value from shared feedstocks. And also, our, our facility is in close proximity to our customer base, which is another strength for our, our chemicals business. And these advantages are, are certainly what underpins the record profitability we've seen this year, but we've also benefited, you know, from some supply shortages and, and storm-related outages in the Gulf Coast, which, you know, admittedly are, are temporary. But as we look ahead, you know, there will be some additional capacity coming online that will lead to lower industry margins. But most of that capacity is expected to supply export markets and not directly impact the markets we sell into. Um, so we continue to be very optimistic over the long term. And, and I would just add that we saw our chemical business earn 
around $50 million per year. Last time we had bottom of cycle pricing conditions, which just goes to show how resilient and advantaged our, our specific chemical business is with all those synergies I, I spoke to. Um, so again, you know, looking ahead, we, we do see a strong market and, and potential for us. Okay, uh, and that's the end of our questions. So uh, I guess I would close by saying thank you very much for joining us and, and for your continued interest. Uh, if you have any further questions or want to have any further discussions, don't hesitate to reach out to the Investor Relations team. And with that, uh, have a great afternoon and a great weekend. Thank you very much. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc thank you for listening to tsx quarterly if you enjoyed the cast remember to leave a good rating and remember for any additional inquiries please consult the company's investor relations section on their website See you next time.